Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Fiction. Science fiction. Horror. Fantasy. Crime. LGBT thriller. You have now entered the House of Mystery with your hosts, Eric Shapiro, David North Martino, John Copenhaver. And our word on 106.5 FM Los Angeles, 102.3 FM Riverside, and 1050 AM Palm Springs. Okay, we're back, and joining us, Lee Muller. Thank you for joining tonight. And um, how how have you been? How are you doing? I just came back from Costa Rica. Oh. And anyone who's ever been to Costa Rica will immediately be like, ah, yeah, Pura Vida. And if you haven't been to Costa Rica, you've got to go because that is going to be, you know, one of the coolest countries in the world. It, uh, the climate is wonderful. And uh, 95% of the country runs on, like, green technologies, like the, the power of the country. They have, like, 5% of the world's biodiversity, and they have the happiest people in the world. And it's not like uh, a poor country either. So I I came back from Costa Rica, uh, avoided the last part of this terrible Canadian winter that we've been having, and came back, and the snow had just about melted. I'm about ready to uh, put out the uh, issue number five of uh, my e-magazine, Serial Killer Quarterly, that's going out uh, tomorrow. And so uh, I can't complain. I'm having a good time. Let's start with the Serial Kill Quarterly. Describe the the, uh, the concept. Like, what what is it about? Well, it's this uh, idea. Um, I've been one of those people that I, I'm always a little bit behind on whatever the trends are. Um, and that went uh, along with like, e-books and e-publishing, too. I was, I was not interested. I like my books. They're... I had a very strong tradition of, of reading ever since I was a child, and I like to have a, a, a physical book, which I pick up and I take somewhere away from the computer or the phone, and I immerse myself in that world. So I was never really interested in the e-publishing side of things. Uh, uh, then when I started to realize that you could make more money in uh, e-publishing than you can in conventional 
thing because of the ongoing uh, artists getting screwed out of money uh, for hard work uh, phenomenon that uh, seems to keep deepening. Yeah. Uh, yeah, uh, then I started to say, okay, well, maybe I'll look at this, this e-publishing thing. Um, and uh, then I started to buy e-books, and I realized there were some you know, real benefits of that. And uh, I had this bright idea of, of how so many cool things in the 20th century uh, went out of print. So I'm talking about, like, old uh, detective magazines, you know, with a, um, usually defined, like, the, the pulp stuff, the, the naughty stuff with, like, the raunchy covers and the, and the, uh, and the lurid stories on the inside and uh, uh, weird tales, you know, where, like, you, you get guys like H.P. Lovecraft or Ray Bradbury, these sort of literary um, uh, magazines um, for, for, for weird thinkers. And, and how all that had kind of gone away um, in, towards the end of the 20th century because of the, you know, the colossal overhead associated with putting out a print magazine. And I realized that I can bring back those sort of magazines now with not as much overhead because it's in an electronic format. So uh, with uh, not as much expenses because it became like, very viable to to do this as a business. So I had a good friend um, who uh, I grew up with, and I, I told him this idea. I said, yeah, I've got this, this cool idea uh, for starting this online press. And I told him about uh, about it, and he was very enthused. He said, yeah, that's, I, I love the sound of that. You know what? I'm going to finance that. Let's do that. And we just made an agreement right there. And uh, lo and behold, Grinning Man Press was born, and the uh, first magazine that uh, Gritty Man Press has put out, it's uh, right now our only publication, but there's a lot more coming, is Serial Killer Quarterly, which is uh, a quarterly uh, magazine featuring some of the best true crime writers on the planet. Uh, we uh, regularly have Dr. Catherine Ramsland and, and Michael Knight for us. We also have had Harold Schechter, Kathy Scott, Burl Bearer, Carol Ann Davis, um, you name it, uh, we're very fortunate to have such a great roster of writers. And uh, the idea is to bring back that detective magazine uh, for people who are interested in reading about uh, serial homicides and, and the like. But to take out like the more misogynistic elements, it's like a, uh, a relic from some era that I never belonged to. I mean, I was born in 1982, right? Yeah. So uh, this was all before my time. Uh, but looking back on it, it all seemed pretty cool. Uh, the thing was, though, that uh, I, uh, as far as, as we know, this didn't uh, adversely affect your psyche where you became some kind of sexual sadist as a result of seeing these magazine covers. Not as uh, yet, anyway. <laughs> nah, I think you're safe. I think I think if you're in your, in your 50s, you're all of a sudden going to go... Woman in trunk. Ah, I, uh, I get it now. <laughs> you know? uh, I don't think that's going to happen. But uh, it did with some people, and uh, I didn't want to be responsible for that. Um, and I, I, we have 80% female readership, and I don't think that uh, that's going to necessarily appeal to them too. I, I just don't think it's uh, it's it's really relevant in this in this day and age maybe to examine as a historical phenomenon, which we've done in, in the upcoming issue. We've, uh, we've looked at some of those old magazine covers, but 
what we've replaced them with is kind of like something a little more subtle and sinister, and it's all about kind of on our covers what you don't see. Um, for example, we have uh, we have a cover where Ted Bundy is walking from his Volkswagen through a snowy forest with a hacksaw in his hand, and he's sort of looking out at the reader. Now, <laughs> what is you? It's kind of like what you don't see, the, the direction that he's heading to, which is off the cover. That's where you will presume that a victim is. But I don't think that kind of cover is, is uh, going to... Uh, it's not going to be anyone's first experience with a nubile or semi-clad female form linked with violence. It's implied rather than, than explicit. Maybe some people are like, ah, or whatever, you know, you're being you're being prudish, or you're taking it too far with that. And I just say, well, not, you know, I'm, I, that's not me at all. If you actually know me, I'm, I'm pretty free in my person. Uh, I just, uh, first of all, I think it's in better taste. I think it's more effective. And and finally, I don't uh, have to have the burden of contributing to the development of a. Of a, of a sexual sadist or necrophile or something so that's yeah. the way we've gone with it uh we focus more on the quality of the content and uh, I, uh if you know anything about the authors that i've i've listed that right for us uh, i think you'll see that they that they stand behind the vision of what we're trying to accomplish i mean this is like this is like a, if i was to say anything would be like the highest brow type of detective magazine that you could get and uh, we've received a lot of uh, feedback saying as much. So I love doing it. I think it's great. Um, so I grew up with those magazines. I know um, the difference, but they were totally acceptable back then. The interesting thing I've noticed about that phenomenon is that it it, it creates a whole kind of new set of of complications because now you're aware of, of like, is this woman too drunk to consent? You know, um, whether you legally or morally or whatever and so where do most people meet to hook up and, and, and have sex well it usually occurs after you've been out drinking right right uh, at least in my experience yeah there's many people i know and so then we're in sort of a new place now where it's like well if if I want to begin maybe a relationship or have a fling, just like a one-night stand with this person, then I have to now assess whether I'm going to be a, a considered a rapist in the morning, even though right now she's consenting and we might both be drunk. So I think the problems of mankind and defining these sort of issues uh, they just change that the form of them, the forms of those issues change, but there's always still some sort of complication to go along with it. Is that making sense to you? Oh yeah, no, and I, I totally agree. It's just it's it's a really uh, interesting subject because it's just how much society's changed in a really short time. It must also change kind of the way you write the magazine. Yeah, I, I mean the, that's the interesting thing about the way that the magazine is written is that uh, we have a theme, okay? So, for instance, the, the magazine that's coming out tomorrow is called Fatal Fetishists. And so what I'll do is I'll, I'll speak to the authors who are going to be involved in this issue, and I'll say, I need you all to concentrate on a specific fetish or paraphilia, you know, like an extreme case of it in this, in this offender. And then I'll speak to them, we'll agree on a case, and uh, 
professional as they are, I'll almost certainly get it in on time, read it over, and like it. Um, but they don't all come at it with the same voice. And uh, that that's interesting for me because I have to be the sort of uh, the, the voice of God, the, the narrator who... As, a, as a, the editor-in-chief of the magazine, what I write is like the glue that binds all of the, these other disparate voices together into something that, uh, that the reader can understand. You know, ah, this is the point of this magazine. It's about fetishes and paraphilia. And uh, so, yeah, that's... Uh, when we talk about the way that the magazine is written... Um, a lot of the times it's, it, it, it's written very differently depending on the author. You've got someone like Burl Bearer will bring a kind of irreverence to it and almost like uh, a sense of humor and, 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 a, and a lightness uh, uh, still with good taste. Um, but then you'll com- compare that to someone who, who writes uh, in a more journalistic fashion and you'll have people that look at the legal processes or the investigation or focus on, like, I like to focus on the killer's psychological background and why they think the way they think. I, I even wrote a piece where I, I wrote from the point of view of the Zodiac killer who's never been caught, and, and the whole point was, like, this is how I think, as someone who's done criminal profiling, criminal, criminology, this is how I think he felt at that, that, uh, during this crime. So you get all kinds of different perspectives going on in the magazine, and I think it benefits from it. Right. Because it's it's like you don't want to listen to a radio station that, that keeps playing the same song. Right? You don't want to hear a song in the key of A four four time, you know, ninety beats per minute, eight times in a row. Right? That you, you'd just be like, oh god, this station is boring. Yeah. And so I'm almost like the DJ, and they're bringing their different cool songs to it, and I get to put them in order and give it some context. This isn't really, uh, and, and, and people got to realize that you're not like celebrating a serial killer. It's not like serial killer cards where you're just out making money. Well, well I mean, yeah, the, the goal is to make money from it. Well, sure, I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to pretend this isn't a commercial venture. Right. But, um, but it's like if you read the magazine, it, it's almost like um, edutainment. Um, you know, it's, it's entertainment that educates you. I don't, I don't write down for the readers. Um, you know, I, I'm doing a PhD. I'm university educated. I'm, a, I'm an author. Um, I don't treat my, my readers like, like they're little kids. You know, I, I, I bring concepts to them. Like, when you read this issue, you're going to enjoy... Uh, learning these seven really creepy stories and, and there's just something about confronting the abyss that is inherently fascinating and there's not really anything moralistic about it you know we're, we're, we're not really pr- pronouncing any kind of moral judgment in the magazine we're just saying here this is interesting but what you will do is you will learn as you're reading it. I'll talk about concepts of psych- psychopathy different paraphilias uh, fetishes arguments about whether paraphilias or fetishes should even uh, exist or be diagnosable in, in the first place. I'll talk about different forensic techniques. Uh, sometimes I'll go off and, and, uh, and, and, and these all occur in these little sidebars I have on the story. And maybe the, the, the story will take place in, in Edinburgh, okay, Edinburgh, Scotland. 
and then I'll have a little sidebar just, you know, with a bit of the history of Edinburgh, Scotland. So um, I think that that's how we sort of frame it. It's like, yeah, it is about it is about murders because uh, let's just face it, they're they're interesting and uh, and we can't deny that that's been present all throughout human history. There's been this a certain large group of people that have found murders interesting. The difference is with this publication, every issue you read, you can come out smarter by doing it. That's what's great about our mag. Do you have a kind of a concept future plan for it, or are you just kind of going to wing it as it goes? Oh, no, I'm definitely a planner. Uh, you know, half the fun is in the plans. It's like, uh, <laughs> that, that's a strange parallel in a way with the serial killer yeah. <laughs> uh, themselves. It's like that you'll often hear from them They'll say, well, you know, it was better when I was fantasizing about it, making all the plans of how I commit the crime, and then I actually murdered the person, and it just wasn't as good. And that's part of the addiction, you know, the, the, the cycle of it, is that it was disappointing. Um, now, I wouldn't, I would go as far to say that releasing the magazine is disappointing, but once the magazine is released, I don't read it. For me, it's all the getting there was the fun part, and the getting there begins with me planning issues which we're going to have in the future, so I already know what uh, all of our magazine issues are going to be up till the end of 2016. It, it's fun to sit down and go like, well, uh, what, what's a good issue that we could do? And, and you know, one of you, um, yeah, it, it occurred to me, like, um, that's, that we're doing coming up, Luxmord Murders in German, and this is just about serial murderers from uh, Germany and Austria, where, you know, they speak uh, the German language. And let's just do an issue on that because most people don't know many, and and that's something we don't do. We don't. We're not always coming out with like, hey, you know, here's a magazine with Ted Bundy, Ed Gein, Albert Fish, John Wayne Gacy, Richard Ramirez, Son of Sam. You know, all these guys that we that they've been. Um, pardon the. Uh, this is an unintentional pun. Done to death, right? We've heard those stories millions of times. Uh, a lot of times we tell stories uh, about about killers that no one's ever heard of. And uh, and that's what I love about the magazine is, is getting away from almost like this canon of like the all-star serial killers as right. if there's something special. I mean, they're losers, right? Yeah. Uh, and, and, and to just look at it more as, as like, well, what about this guy that, you know, history has forgotten his crimes and his victims? And, 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 and let's take a look at that because you know what? Maybe that case is as interesting as those other cases, but the media just didn't sell it to you the same way. Do you think there's a reason why media picks certain ones, like, you know, um, Boston Strangler or, like, the Zodiac, like you were talking about? Why it would pick them over other serial killers that have done just as much and maybe sometimes even worse? Yeah, I think there's a certain amount of criteria that goes into that. Um, I think typically those ones that, uh, that we're familiar with, they all tend to happen in, in or around large urban centers. Um, so with, uh, you know, Bundy, you've got Seattle. With the Zodiac, you've got San Francisco. Son of Sam, you've got New York. You've got L.A. for the Night Stalker. Chicago for Gacy, right? Um, and, and, you know, and so I think that's a big part of it is that they happen in places where there's... Um, that the media is kind of already situated and, and, and there's a lot of people. That's only, that's only part of it. I would say also, too, um, a lot of the way 
the, the killer's story unfolds and the way they play to the cameras a bit. I mean, there's a lot of a lot of these guys that will, yeah, they'll commit crimes in major urban centers, but they they don't do anything that marks them as particularly interesting in the courtroom, perhaps, or you know they don't escape from jail or they don't write letters to the police. So it's about the narrative too, you know, um, the particular way that 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 killer almost sells themselves. A lot of the time, maybe it's just like slow news day or, or, or there was something else going on in the world at that point in time where um, for instance uh, there was a guy uh, com- coming out in the, in the issue we're putting out tomorrow fatal fetishes fascinating case he's from uh, Bradford England and he was a 40 year old criminology student and he was obsessed with serial killers and uh, he murdered uh, three prostitutes I think two of them with a crossbow and one with a hammer and uh, this was inside this apartment, and uh, then he dismembered them, and he ate parts of them, and and dumped their bodies uh, in or around this river. So you've got a lot of elements there for a good story. Um, you know, if you're looking at it from a media point of view, you've got you know, oh, cannibalism, gross. Uh, oh, he was a criminology student. Oh, he used the crossbow, and things like that. And and even uh, he got caught because. There was a, a security camera in the hallway of his apartment building that captured him shooting this woman uh, in the head with a crossbow cause, as she was escaping and then dragging her back into his apartment. And then uh, about 10 minutes later, he walked out and uh, flipped the middle finger to the, to the camera. So we knew he was going to get caught. He goes, before, um, he goes before a judge and like some sort of pretrial thing. And the judge says, please state your name. And the guy goes, the crossbow cannibal. So what you, what you have here is the makings of, of a really big story, yet within a month, um, within a month uh, this other guy, Derek Bird, goes on a mass shooting rampage throughout northern England and kills something like 12 people or more, wounding about the same. And his story eclipses the crossbow cannibal story. So I think a part of it, too, is like the circumstances of, of, of what's going on um, at the time. I, I kind of see that. The, uh, you know, I was interviewing, I, I actually t- interviewed the uh, Matt Smiley. He was the director for the uh, Highway of Tears movie documentary. Oh, yeah. That's, that's just out there. Yeah. And see, and that's, that's, a, that's a really good example because it's really been ignored. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because it's in northern British Columbia, right? So right. we're away from those major urban centers. Let's look at who the victims are. Sorry, that's a yeah. fourth point I should have brought in. The victims are uh, young Aboriginal women, for the yeah. most part, right. um, who were Ted Bundy's victims. They were middle class, uh, attractive white women uh, going to college. So right there you have like, oh, oh my God, can you believe our beautiful daughters are being taken, our daughters, our, you know, like yeah. middle, middle class white community. Yeah. Um, we don't see aboriginal, uh, poor aboriginal females as our daughters. It's like there's something other, the same way that we would see, you know, prostitutes, it's an other, or gay men, it's, an, it's another. And that plays into the kind of, sensationalism of the case 
as well. I mean, uh, most of the people that John Wayne Gacy killed, I, I, I don't believe were gay. They were, they were young teenage boys. Right. And then you get someone like Randy Kraft, um, who, uh, yeah, I, I believe there was a lot more gay victims than the Randy Kraft killings, and he may have killed up to 61 people, like, sadistically tortured them, uh, worse than Gacy. It's, it's one of the most atrocious cases in history. But, you know, you've got to look at who, who the victims are, and, and then you ask yourself, well, why is Gacy known so much more than Randy Kraft? Uh, there's some cases that will um, the police will just be a little bit more liberal with um, releasing uh, information or releasing the files once the case is over, and then it will find its way into a textbook, and then people they come to know it through the textbook or, or, or you know, something like that. Uh, all kinds of factors. That, and I, I subscribe to the uh, Google alerts because basically... Um, through um, my publishing company and my uh, academic career, it's really important for me to stay on top of pretty much every serial murder and mass murder case that happens. And to be honest, I don't have the time. I just have an inbox full of yeah. Google alerts. But you'd be amazed at how many cases of serial murder are happening all the time. And they're just going under the, um, our noses. It's like it's almost become normal now. It's like the last big case was Jeffrey Dahmer. And then there was no... There was no trumping that case, and then there was nothing really to talk about anymore. Is there a, a profile for a serial killer? And I mean that in the sense of, um, it, 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 is it true that it's very seldom a black man, for instance? No, that's, uh, that's false, actually. Um, okay. Yeah, um, uh, one of the great myths, and this is only just coming to light, so anyone who believes that, you know, I understand why you believe that because you've been given misinformation for years. Um, new studies are showing that as many as 40% of serial killers in the United States uh, might be black. Uh, and I think the black population is between, what, what 12 and 15%? Right. Yeah. So once again, though, look at who the victims are. Uh, people tend to kill within their own race, tend to, okay? Yeah. It's not a hard, fast rule. So one of the arguments could be like the reason that we haven't heard of all of these black serial killers is because they're killing black victims and black victims in white middle class society aren't afforded the same, uh, what's the word, value perhaps, right. as, as the other victims. And second of all, um, how many movies do you see in which there's a black serial killer? It's like, this, it's like if a serial killer is black, the me- it doesn't sell with the media for some reason. I, I, I don't know what that's about. So those are two of the factors that have been put forth by pe- lots of people before myself as, as to why um, there's this myth of, of uh, you know, serial killers being almost exclusively white. The fact is, per capita, there's an overrepresentation of blacks. Well, it's probably because of that. I mean, the sense that, uh, you know, look at the serial killer cards, you know, uh, and the movies. It's all been about white serial killers, right? I mean, from Helter Skelter to uh, Zodiac to Boston Strangler to even Dahmer, every every sort of scenario and movie you've seen, you know, it's exposure. It's all It's all the... The white male. I mean, how's that even for women? Is there a lot of female serial killers? 
10% of serial killers are female. Now, uh, females do it differently uh, as, a, as a rule of thumb, okay? We don't see a lot of sexual, uh, sexually motivated uh, female serial killers. And I'm going to put in a caveat here. Uh, I think it's a real problem when we try and reduce things to a single motive. Like say, okay, that guy was like a sex guy, this guy was a power guy, this, this person was a money guy. Oftentimes, the motives sort of blur together, you know, where um, the power over life and death may become sexualized, and that also the sense of, of carrying out that murder and getting away with it adds like an excitement and thrill element to it, you know, of getting, uh, being under the police radar and, and being brazen about your crimes. And so I, I never like to think of things in terms of single motives, but what we do see with female serial killers is that, uh, I'll, I'll bang off a couple of points to you that, that uh, are worn out by statistics. First of all, females are better at serial killing than men. <laughs> yeah, they, have, uh, they typically have longer careers and, and, and more victims. Um, they tend to kill people that uh, either are family members or um, people who are under their care. And that can play into like, uh, you know, gender roles, uh, woman as nurturer. Um, so you'll see a lot of, uh, of nurses who are serial killers, people charged with looking after uh, weak people. Uh, also, things like cooking for the, the family or the, or the husband, um, that affords a lot of opportunity to slip in, like poison and such. And uh, that also goes in with, uh, with one of the primary um, motives for female serial killers is financial. Um, female serial killers tend to be motivated by uh, a desire to profit, usually through like uh, life insurance policies that they put out on on people they they know, um, and they'll you know kill one husband, collect the life insurance, move on, kill another husband, collect his life insurance. But there's always usually uh, an element of power in that too. And it's emphasized to different degrees in, in, in different offenders. But, um, it, you know, it, when you're slowly poisoning someone to death and, you do, and you're doing this over a period of, of weeks or months, um, knowing that, that you're doing that, there is a, there's definitely a sense of power and control that, and the idea of, of being able to get away with this, the thrill of it, I think that would, would also play into those female perpetrators. And then there's also, um, uh, have you heard of Munchausen syndrome by proxy? Yes, yeah. Yeah, that is, that's essentially for people who, who don't know what that is. Um, it's when uh, somebody makes somebody else very sick or die so that they can get a, a, attention uh as a proxy of the person who's been affected by the death or illness. So you'll have uh, mothers, and they'll have like six babies who died of, uh, of SIDS, you know, or crib death. And the pe every time the baby dies, uh, you get all kinds of people come up to them. I can't believe it. Four times this has happened to you now. You poor woman, I don't know how you, you deal with it. We'll, you know, we'll be there for you. You're so strong, and all that is is right there. It's attention, 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 and so these are the trends that we see 
that seem to be present uh, more in female serial killers. For men, it's more of like there's a lot stronger sexual element to it, and men uh, tend to kill uh, strangers. Wow. And so, and, and also in the woman, I guess they tend to be slower at doing it. Like when, you, when, you, when you're killing your children or um, spouses, you're not like doing, uh, uh, you know, some, uh, a person every week or every, every month. You're, it's taking longer. Right, exactly. There's, uh, they seem, seem to be more patient with it. And uh, because if all of a sudden, like, you know, all, all their husbands have suddenly dropped dead without any, without any signs that they've been sick beforehand, that's going to arouse suspicion a lot earlier, right? But yeah. if uh, it's known that they're ill and they've got this strange disease uh, that, that no one seems to be able to, to treat, and then they expire after, you know, say eight months of this or even years of this, uh, then you're much less likely to become, uh, it, it's less, much, much less likely to be suspected as a homicide, which means that the wife is uh, not going to come on the police radar as, as a, a possible serial killer. So it's not as much of a pressing demand, <laughs> I guess, like you're not, like, urged, like a lot of the male serial killers tend to have to keep killing to satisfy an urge. Yeah, yeah, there is, I mean, there is a compulsive element to, to certain female serial killers. Like, I, for instance, there's one in, in Canada uh, whose name is alternatively Melissa Russell, Melissa Shepard, Millie Weeks, I, Melissa Ann Friedrich. I've lost track of all of her pseudonyms by now, but uh, she's been confirmed of killing her first husband, strongly suspected of killing her second, uh, charged with basically trying to kill her third, and then charged again with trying to kill her fourth. Now, this woman has been doing this since, I, I think, the 80s, and I, I published a book in 2012 called Cold North Killers, Canadian Serial Murder, which is interesting if, if you want to know about the serial killers we have up here in the Great White North. There's about 60 of them in there. Anyways, I wrote a chapter on this woman in Cold North Killers, and I was at a public library, and I was, I was doing a lecture, and I, I mentioned her as, as an example of a female serial killer who kills for profit. And I said, oh, by the way, she's out right now. Like, she's, she's not in prison. Um, she's somewhere out in the East Coast, and... and I wouldn't be surprised, you know, it's just a matter of time before she does this again. And the information is out there. There have been CBC, Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, documentaries about this woman. She was in my book, uh, which is sold quite well. And so even though all this attention had been on her, um, I think within two months of me having given that lecture at the library, boom, there she is, pops up in the news again, I think she's well into her 70s now. She knows that she's that she's going to be a suspect. Uh, everyone knows about her, and yet she tries to do it again to her to her newest husband, who I guess doesn't read much or watch much true crime television. <laughs> and uh, so there's got to be a compulsive element in that when you know that everyone's got their eyes on you, and you still do it. Right. 
So there, yeah, definitely we, we get a compulsion in the female serial killers, but yeah, with uh, with male serial killers, there's I think um, I think a lot of it has got to do with like an ego reinforcing thing. It makes them feel better about themselves in order to in order to destroy, in order to have power over their victims, and. A lot of the time it's played out in the fantasy scenario in their head. And the, the thing about fantasy, if you think about your own fantasies, whether it's just like, I'd like to go here with, you know, and I'd like to go to Costa Rica, and when I'm in Costa Rica, it'll be like this. And, and you have you imagine what it'll be like. Does anything ever go wrong in, in your fantasies? It, no, especially sexual fantasies. Like, I've never had a sexual fantasy where anything's gone wrong in my sexual fantasy. Yeah. Right, and I yeah. think that's true of most, almost all people. So the reality never lives up to the fantasy, and so it becomes like an an addiction to this fantasy, which which reinforces self esteem and 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 uh, a, a sense of purpose and identity and power in the individual. But because it's always falling short, because it doesn't live up, the murder doesn't actually live up to the fantasy. It becomes like a, a an addiction, much like any other addiction. So that's how I would explain the, you know, the difference between male and female serial killers. And you were mentioning the the males tend to do strangers more than than people they know. Yeah, because the crimes are a lot more overt. Uh, like it, it, you don't. It's very rare that you'll see a, a what what a man wants to do to his victims is typically not something that you can hide. It's like you, they, you know, may have a fantasy of of cutting off a female breast or torturing them or, or having sex with the corpse or cutting them into pieces or, I mean, I could go on forever. Mm-hmm. Those things are not, that's not the type of behavior that you can pass off as an accident. Right, right. And so, uh, you know, um, I was just going to say, how many, how many uh, actual serial killers are out and around at one time? Like, how many are going on right now? Like, how many do you think uh, is available in, in the U.S. or in Canada in any one year? I've seen vastly different sums, uh, figures. I, I get my statistics from, from elsewhere, um, and it usually depends on just putting them out. Typically, academics will give you a lot lower number than uh, law enforcement agencies, especially like the FBI. And that makes a lot of sense if you think about it, is that, uh, you know, the FBI is looking for increased government funding. So they're going to exacerbate the problem, whereas academics are, you know, who may also have an agenda, um, but they tend to have lower um, rates. Now, going on my gut instinct, just, what I would think is, you have, what, 300 million people in the United States? Roughly, yeah, yeah. That's a lot of people. That's a yeah, lot. Too many. <laughs> <laughs> well, I thought you were encouraging this kind of behavior. <laughs> no, yeah. just, just, just brought it up. <laughs> a little casual eugenics slip going on in there. That's it, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I tease you. No. Um, but... Uh, 300 million people is a lot of people. Yeah. And so if I were to say I actually think there's 
800 serial killers at large in a population of 300 million people. And the, the current definition of a serial killer being has killed two or more people in different incidents. Okay. Yeah, I was just going to ask that. Yeah. I think that's low. Now, a lot of, a lot of academics uh, tell you, no, that's, that's way too high. There's not that many. No, I, I'm sorry. Just based on what to me is common sense, I think I'm giving you a low number when I say 100 out of 300 million people. Yeah. Well, that's actually, not jobs yeah. in this world. Oh, God, yeah. And they're running for government. And that's... Um, <laughs> Don't yeah. get me into that. Yeah, I was going to say the whole, serial murders. Yeah, that, that the whole Congress is. <laughs> yeah, probably not get me uh, <laughs> jobs at certain places. So we no. can go on that. That's right. Be 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 correct. The uh, <laughs> I, I, well, actually, and that's pretty low considering the crime rate and the murder rate with guns per year just in the U.S. Like it's quite a bit lower in in Canada and all the other countries actually compared. Um, so, it's yeah. It, it, interestingly, it's like the um, uh, there's always a scare going on about crimes, and especially homicides getting worse. The fact is that the homicide rate has been dropping since the '80s. Right. It just the media doesn't report on it. It's just a fact. Ask ask anyone that seriously studies this topic. But what's interesting is of the homicides that are occurring the number of stranger homicides as a portion of that overall homicide number, the stranger homicides are increasing. So interpret that as you will. Right. Uh, I haven't had time to sit down and really think about that one thoroughly yet. It's not really something you can research. Um, <laughs> no. But uh, overall homicide rates are dropping, but the murder of strangers within that statistic is increasing yeah well do you think there's something different in the nature of 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 the u.s and an american in that way uh because it still is a really high murder and murder by gun rate Mm -hmm. comparatively to most other countries that are in the same situation like you know uh like england and australia and canada and and things like that when you come to the U.S. percentage-wise, it's still very, very high. Yeah, I was looking at the statistic, uh, and it doesn't occur to me, but it was like from last year, I think, and there had been zero... No, sorry, that was related to um, uh, police who shot people. I'm not going to quote that. No. So that's irrelevant. Um, But, yeah, I, I honestly think that... Yeah, the gun, well, the reason that you have more gun-related crimes is because more guns. You, can, you can buy an M16, yeah. you know, <laughs> or it's equivalent in the United States. I mean, that's a no-brainer. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Uh, I'm not even going to... I'm not even going to get into that. If you look no, no, that. no. And it, well, it makes sense, right? I mean, yeah. uh, you're going to have more if you have more guns. That's just, you know, there's just there should be no battle on that. Um, so, do you think the other countries, like like in the in the British Empire, would have a big increase if if they let guns be sold in the same way? Well, I'm just, you know... I don't want to... No, I'm not, and I don't even... I don't even... on me, because in a, no. in a way, I do understand a lot of the arguments for the right to bear arms. Oh, totally, um, totally. Because, yeah. as I was indicating, you know, the state, the state can be some of the worst murderers there, yeah. there is. Um, 
Well, I think yeah. I think I agree. I just want I take yeah. it easier for you because I'm just saying that um, um, I'm not trying to bring a, a thing about U.S. Canada I'm, or any of that. Yeah. I'm just thinking as in you know the the actual. You know, you know the biggest. Uh, yeah, there's more guns and there's less checking, so you can have all sorts of issues, be a criminal, and still buy a lot of guns, and that's that's obviously a big problem. But do you think the nature of just having it makes it different in a person? How about that? Rather than oh yeah, sure, picking? definitely. I mean, um, I've I've been to a lot of different parts of the United States. Um, uh, I've also spent a lot of time there. I've spent a lot of time. In uh, the United Kingdom, I was, I was born there, and I go back very often. Uh, and obviously, I, I live in Canada, and I've lived here since I was five years old. So I, I've, I've been to about three of these English-speaking countries. I could certainly say that if you introduce the kind of access to guns that you have in the United States into, um, into British society, I think you'd see a comparable rate. Because it's, because there is a lot of violence in British society, but uh, especially like uh, you know in, in industrial areas and working class areas. Uh, I mean, uh, Manchester, uh, parts of London, uh, a lot of the, the, the northern sort of Rust Belt areas. Uh, the propensity for violence is is, uh, is certainly there. Like you can't even get beer in a glass in many places because someone you know a standard fight there not a standard but a regular enough fight there in a bar will be someone busts a glass and thrusts it into a person's face puts it and permanently deforms them so uh, you know the end is a problem to such an extent that now you in a lot of establishments like especially clubs you're getting everything in a plastic cup like you're a child right yeah. So, if that's any indicator, imagine those same people had access to guns. Right. Yeah. It just makes it easier. Yeah, and the thing is, it's, it's hard to it's it's hard to get a gun in in the UK, and uh, just because you have to get it through the black market, it drives the price up so much. Right. Yeah. yeah. And uh, who is it? There's a comedian I was listening to that says like. I think it was, it was the comedian Jim Jeffries made a point. He said, if you can afford to spend like $50,000 or whatever it is on the black market to get a gun, you don't have any problems. Like, you're a good little saver. Yeah, yeah. I don't have anyone. Got lots of money, right? <laughs> yeah, and that's, you know. So now you actually, you started writing, um, and so you've written a couple of books. So now your first book was uh, The Cold North Killers? Yeah, Cold North Killers 2012. Um, I worked on that one for about three years. That was my um, the interesting story behind that one was that uh, it started off where I was going to write a fiction story about a uh, Native Canadian uh, profiler, criminal profiler for the RCMP. And I thought that's going to be a cool story because Canada is such a diverse country, just like the United States. You know, there's all kinds of different regions he could go to uh, and, and, and uh, investigate these different weird murders. Uh, so I said to myself, well, what do I know? Because I don't want to copy something that's actually happened in Canada by accident and then 
be called out on that. And, and so I so said, I better really educate myself. And I thought, well, what are the serial killers that I know in Canada? And I went, okay, so there's Paul Bernardo and Carla Hamoka. That one's kind of internationally known. Uh, there's uh, Robert Picton, the pig farmer, right? Mm, yeah. uh, that one certainly crossed the border uh, because of the whole pig angle. Um, Clifford Olson. Clifford Olson, yes. Clifford Olson was like our first well-known one. And, you know, he's a real scumbag. And he died as I was finishing my book and I had a big smile on my face. (laughs) But um, that was it at the time that I was writing my book. And I thought, three? Really? Three? You know, we got 30 million people in this country and our culture isn't that different from the United States or, you know, the United Kingdom. And there's a lot of serial murderers in those countries. So what isn't being said here? So I started to dig. And keep in mind, I'm doing this for a fiction novel I'm going to write. But then if I start to dig, and I'm on cover, whoa, hold on, wait, there's 11. All of a sudden, I start becoming more interested in writing a book about what I call the secret history of serial murder in Canada. Um... I start becoming more interested in writing that nonfiction book than I do my silly little detective novel. And I keep digging more and more. Wait, 25 now? 50? <laughs> I'm, I'm up to over 100 now. Yeah. And now, to be fair, that includes unsolved cases. Um, but they, but uh, yeah, they're linked. Uh, I checked it out. Uh, so... There's a hundred serial killers in Canadian history. I didn't even get to fit them all into my book. I, I got 60 of them in Gold North Killers. So if you um, you or your audience wants to ever hear about the hidden history of uh, serial homicide in Canada, it's all in there. And uh, all the same prototypes, really, that, uh, that you'll find in the U.S. and the United Kingdom. Uh, you know, there's uh, the rippers, the necrophiles, sexual sadists, uh, some are psychopaths, some aren't, uh, people killing for profit, and a couple female killers, teen killers. They're all just in Canada. It's nobody, uh, nobody knew about it until I put that book out. And, uh, yeah. Well, yeah. It's quite interesting, but, I mean, because there's, um, like, you, I, 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 know, I know I've been through it, and I know that uh, you've had, like, uh, like uh, you know, the colonel, the colonel killer oh. and... If I may, yes, I've got to tell the story. The Colonel. I was writing my book in Brighton, Ontario, which is a town of ten thousand people. At the time, this town was so small and filled with geriatrics that it didn't even have a goddamn bar. <laughs> right. Yeah. This is what leads a man to write a book on serial killers. <laughs> or the serial killing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, well, who am I going to go after? All these yeah. people? Like, well, not for me, yeah. right? <laughs> Maybe change, change the voting demographics. A bit. <laughs> um, so, and, and anyways, jokes aside, um, I'm in the uh, Brighton, Ontario, this town of 10,000 people. Uh, I'm out uh, in, in the country on a lake, and I'm uh, writing my serial killer book. And all of a sudden... It would have been early 2010. A woman goes missing from 
the nearby community of, uh, of Belleville, which is about a half an hour drive away. And uh, a good-looking 27-year-old uh, middle-class woman uh, living in her own house out on the country road. She disappears. Her name was Jessica Lloyd. And it was all over the place. It was all over the newspapers. Jessica Lloyd has gone missing. What happened to Jessica Lloyd? And I started to go, huh, huh, you know, what if that's a serial killer? And then I went, shut up, idiot. If people go <laughs> missing all the time, the only reason that you think it's a serial killer is because all you've been doing for the past, you know, six months is researching serial killers. And so I just went, you know, it could be a single incident sex murder. It could have been any number of reasons why people disappear. Just put it away. Then it turns out not only is it a serial killer, but that serial killer has also claimed a prior victim in Brighton, the town of 10,000 people where I'm writing my book. Uh, he claimed her in 2009 on a night where I was writing my book in that exact same town, which was just an eerie coincidence to me, <laughs> given the size of the place. Right. So this guy's killed two victims, and they've brought him, they've, they've brought him to justice. And who is it? He's the commander of Trenton Air Force Base, which is the most important Air Force Base in Canada. This is one of the most important men in the, in the Canadian military. And his name is Russell Williams. And this is unfolding right around where I live, right as I'm, I'm, I'm writing this book on serial killers. And it, it was just, for me, it was like, wow. And you start, you start getting like weird magical thoughts when that happens. It's like, oh, did I just unlock some kind of evil portal by delving into this? You know, you, you know and then, you know, you start to be reasonable and you of course not it's just a coincidence yeah. but um so the way i wrote the russell williams story in in uh, cold north killers unlike the other stories i wrote it from a first person perspective and i i wrote it about watching this all unfold as i was writing the book and as i was learning about serial murders um the predictions that i was making about this this type of person based on the information i was receiving and as, uh, as uh, fortune would have it, uh, the Russell Williams case, ex-Colonel Russell Williams case, was resolved right as my book was coming out. So I got to tell a great deal of the tale in the book. Um, and I don't know, uh, this guy would have been one of the more well-known Canadian serial killers. I mean, you guys heard about him in the States, or at least a lot of you did. So uh, all that to say is that was peculiar for me. Oh, yeah, that would have been. It would have made it um, almost real as you were writing it. Yeah. You like I've, I've, I've driven down into town and just seen where that woman was was killed. You know, I've, I've been back. I've, I've seen both houses. You know, I've, it's... Uh, like, if I was in Toronto or, or Montreal or something like that, I wouldn't have felt that, that strange sense of coincidence because those are, those are large metropolitan centers. Of course there could be a serial killer in there. Right, but right. The idea that I'm writing the book in a town of 10,000 people and it happens there, spooky man. Yeah, yeah. Were you um, able to 
interview any of the serial killers? It's a question I'm often asked. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. And it's, uh, I often feel that, uh, and I don't think you're doing this, but I often feel that people are seeing about my credibility um, as a criminologist and as a writer um, when they ask me that question. And the fact is, it's almost impossible, Yeah. Um, especially in Canada. Like, it's hard enough in the United States, and you have a much more open justice system. Right. Uh, but in Canada, I, I just basically straight out uh, went uh, through, through mutual friends. I went to someone who was pretty much in charge of all the prisons, at least in Ontario, and, uh, and and I said, you know, so, like, what do I have to do to get to see these people? And it's just like, look, realistically, you're not going to. You can file all this paperwork if you want, but you're not going to get to see them. Like, we don't do that. Right. Yeah, so, not, not uh, as commercial. No, not as commercial. The only way I could get, and, you know, ever really speak to those people um, face-to-face would be if I was a middle-aged you know, forensic psychiatrist who had 30 years of experience under their belt. Right. And the kind of questions that I want to ask them as a criminologist who deals in the very specific methodology and uh, I look at things a little bit different, um, yeah. I'm never going to be in that position. So I'm going to have to come at it from a different angle. Yeah. Uh, I, am try- I am trying well, yeah, and I, I don't think you need it anyway. I wasn't actually doing it as credibility, and I, I don't think you need it. I think that um, my point is um, if if you actually interviewed them and how you felt 
uh, it's more about the feeling. You're sitting in the in a in a in a room with them. Uh, did you did, did you feel they were guilty? Did it come across? How did it feel sitting in the room? Did you you know? It's more about that yeah. than yeah. I've than never done it, so I, I can tell you. I've had uh, I've had little brushes here and there with. Uh, I had a I had a guy emailing me uh, when the magazine started up, and he was saying that uh, you know that he was afraid that he was turning into a, you know that he might turn into a serial killer because he has all of the. Uh, Antecedents in, the, in his in his background, and uh, and you know he, he's got this hate, this kind of misanthropic hate going on, and so you know whether that was real or not, I don't know. But I I did ex- I had an exchange with this man, and I just I spoke with him, and I tried to just reason things out with him. Yeah. And his thing was that uh, he, uh, the way he explained it to me. I won't get into the details of his personal problems right. because yeah. that would be violating, you know, the agreement that we had between us. But uh, I'll say that one of his things was that he felt the world was full of people that were just so terrible that he, you know, he almost felt that they deserved to die. And so I tried to be real with him. I, I came back and I said, you know what? I agree with you. The world is full of terrible people. I don't, I don't think that mankind is necessarily good and benevolent i don't i don't buy into that i, I think that people are generally rather selfish ultimately yeah. so, but i want you to think about what you're trying to do it's like you're trying to drain the pacific ocean with an eyedropper it's not going to happen so your your mission is pointless and you're just going to hurt people and ultimately hurt yourself and uh the last communication i had with him he said that that made sense and uh, I just left it at that, and hopefully that's where his head still is. Yeah. So, you know, I do have, I have little encounters, and there's, there's been more things like that, some stuff I can't get into, uh, but I, I do have encounters with, with, with people you, yeah. who are, you know, it's not, it's not entirely that um, I'm doing this without interacting with with dangerous or potentially dangerous people yeah yeah and 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 with modern technology and all the uh social medias it's so easy for people to get in contact with you now that's it yeah Yeah, um kind of scary to be honest yeah yeah um not scary in the way that like uh, i've come to terms with the fact a long time ago that like you know people are like oh you study serial killers um you ever afraid that one of them might kill you? And I'm thinking, like, well, if I was an actor, an actor, would you ask me that question? Because the amount of criminologists killed by serial killers versus the amount of actors, or act, well, not serial killers, but by by murderers, right? Yeah. You know, think of think of how many celebrity stalkers there are out there. I feel a lot safer as a as a criminologist and the author of you know, some textbooks and uh, and. Uh, true crime books than I do as like a super celebrity. Oh yeah, oh yeah, totally. I, I wouldn't want to be some of the celebrities that are out there, you know, there's just no freedom. Yeah, uh, I remember hearing about Johnny Depp recently, uh, someone on Gabaldon, and he can't even leave his house, he can't even leave his mansion, like I mean, it doesn't sound so bad, he's scared the word mansion, but it well, is bad, <laughs> you can't leave, yeah. people harass you constantly. 
Yeah, I just, you know, it doesn't matter who it is, you know, you, you hear about that, and you just think about people that just, there's always someone outside of your house or mansion. Yeah, you have lots of money, and you have wealth, a beautiful place, but it doesn't matter what you do. Any There's people sitting outside trying to get a picture of you or follow you all day, all night, year after year. <laughs> I just... The idea that you can even be really free in a city like New York was pretty much uh, squashed when uh, when John Lennon was killed by Chapman. Yeah, you know, I think yeah. was it was eighty, eighty-one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's December. So, um, yeah, but that's. Uh, I, I, I get I get close enough. I'd like to get a little closer. Um, I don't I don't live in fear. I mean, right. If, if I'm killed by bullets or I'm killed by cancer, uh, I'm sure either one of them is going to be pretty painful or not. Yeah, knows? yeah, just, yeah. You <laughs> just don't want it to last a long time if it's, <laughs> if it's uh, painful. Our guest tonight, Lee Muller, the subject serial killers. We'll be back right after this break. Is there a certain serial killer in Canada that really stuck out to you that, that you hadn't heard of before, that all of, when you were doing the research it was just like, wow? That was really freaky. Like, it's something you didn't expect to hear about coming from Canada? Yeah, there, uh, there was a, a, a guy, um, okay, there was a guy in Montreal. He was actually an American, but he crossed over into Canada, committed some murders here, gone back to the States and committed some really heinous uh, and prolific American serial killer that uh, that for some reason just completely eluded the the attention of the world. Once again, it's like why? And in that case, I don't know. I think maybe it was the way that it was that he sort of played the game. But his name is William Dean Christensen, and he spent a lot of time in in Montreal. And uh, he was arrested there, I think, for for raping a woman or assaulting her or something. And he was imprisoned in Montreal under a fake name. When he got out of prison in Montreal, he got himself an apartment in the city, uh, and uh, then uh, one day uh, he just sort of disappeared, and the, I guess the landlord and maybe the caretaker of the apartment building, uh, which is, I believe, 105 Milton Street in Montreal, if there's anyone from Montreal listening and you live at 105 Milton Street, here's what they didn't tell you when you signed the... Uh, when you signed the uh, lease, okay, is that uh, these guys went into his apartment and uh, they were saying he's gone, okay, he's gone. Well, uh, we don't know what happened to him, but obviously we're going to have to rent this place out. And then they find a woman's head in the stove, in the pantry, and mm -hmm. her legs in... Uh, some black garbage bags. So this guy had effectively chopped this woman into three pieces and then hid them around the apartment so that whoever came in would make a series of horrific discoveries. And this is something that we would refer to as posing. Um, you pose a body to shock the people that are gonna that are gonna find them. And then he uh, he killed another woman and uh, chopped her up and buried her and returned to the States. Uh, in the States, uh, stabbed to death a, uh, a go-go dancer and uh, positioned 
like some kind of plush toy on her corpse, and uh, shot a few uh, a few black men and, and was eventually jailed. But I found that a really bizarre case in that the this idea of, of cutting someone in pieces and hiding them around the apartment like it was some kind of practical joke. That one, uh, that one certainly stood out to me. Yeah, that's just, I guess, I, you know, and it must affect you emotionally when you're doing months and months of research like this and you're going through these cases. Um, Sometimes you've got to go to Costa Rica and try and get <laughs> on those watered-down resort drinks. Yeah. Yeah, but they yeah. don't factor into the fact that, that you're from, like, northern Viking culture yeah. and you can't possibly get drunk on what they get drunk on in Costa Rica. It's very frustrating. Yeah. But, yeah. <laughs> Anyways, yeah, that's how I, that's how I, yeah. I, it doesn't, it doesn't, I don't have like this trauma thing going on. No. Um, I've no. seen horrific things. I've seen uh, a video from uh, Ukraine uh, where two boys just are bashing a guy's head with a hammer and, and he's unconscious and there's blood gurgling out, out of his mouth and he's trying to speak and move and breathe and he can hear it all and then they, jab a screwdriver into his stomach and start mutilating his guts and everything like that. I've seen that. Like I had, I had to watch, I had to watch that for, uh, for some research I was doing. So uh, I've also seen the infamous, uh, Luca Magnata video. Um, you, you know who that is, I assume. Yeah. Yeah, I do. I, I, yeah, I don't know if a lot of listeners would know, but Luca Magnata is, uh, a recently convicted Canadian wannabe serial killer because he only killed one person who uh, spent all his life trying to be famous because he's uh, absolutely pathetic and has no sense of identity or self or confidence. And uh, he tried to do this through modeling. Uh, he was a, a gay porn star for a while. Um, he would create all kinds of fake controversies about himself on the internet to get his name out there. Uh, he, he had, he's the kind of guy he created like, you know, hundreds of Facebook accounts to like his own page. Oh. So, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, he sucks. Like, that's, and that's the thing about these serial killers, like, people, or, you know, lust murderers or whatever. Um, the people are like, oh, you're, you know, don't you think you're glamorizing them or sensationalizing them by writing about them? I'm like, well, there's nothing to glamorize. They're, they're the epitome of failure, you know? Like, they want you to, like, they care so much about fitting in or, like, being rejected by the social system that they have to, to, to go out and murder as some kind of, like, primitive vengeance rather than having some kind of philosophical or spiritual adjustment to it, right? So... Um, segueing back into who Luca Magnata is, he finally went for his fame when he re uh, lured a young acquaintance into his apartment in Montreal, he drugged him, cut his throat, uh, then he starts filming it. He filmed uh, stabbing the guy, I, I counted 200 plus times, uh, stabbing his corpse, uh, dismembered him, uh, had sex with his partially dismembered and decapitated body um, and then cut a piece out of him and put it on the fork and showed it to the camera implying that he was going to eat him. I don't know whether he decided or actually any proof that he did or not. And then uh, he had a, put, brought out a kitten, 
So I got to watch, I think it was a kitten, or someone said it's a puppy, but man, he brought out an animal and he put it by the bloody stump of this, this poor man that he killed. And, and then the animal starts licking at the blood because it's an animal and it doesn't know any better. And then the video ends where Luca Magnotta is using his victim's dismembered arm to basically pleasure himself. And then he, it was like an international manhunt and they, they caught him in a cafe in Berlin looking at the news articles of himself on the internet. <laughs> I just, what is that? I mean, and yeah. uh, now he's now he's in prison and he's, you know, on medication and and they're feeding him the high carbohydrate prison diet so he's gone from being like this, this slim pretty boy with all these you know, serial killer creepies to just being this, uh, you know, bloated, <laughs> nobody, right, failed serial killer. I mean, yeah. it's, uh, so I had to watch that video to make a long story short. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I had to watch, because sometimes I'm on radio shows like this one right now, and uh, they want to know my take on it, and that means I have to watch that video. And bringing this back into your original question, so look, once you've been, once you've seen things like that, you know, you can either take it or you can't. Right. And apparently, I can take it, so I'm steeled against it. Yeah. One thing I haven't been to yet is at a crime scene. I haven't smelled it yet. Right. We'll see how I deal with that. But, yeah. Uh, okay. No. Um. I'm like a surgeon. I'm like a cop. Uh, I'm like a, a nurse and undertaker. There are just some people that are fit to deal with certain situations and and they have the nerve to do it and I don't know what that says about me but uh, I, I see myself as being useful because I have that ability. Uh, you know, you've written a second book and it's called Rampage, right? Yeah, Rampage, Canadian Mass Murders and Spree Killing, which was like the logical extension of Cold North Killers. Uh, now that one I didn't try and pack in every uh, mass murderer and spree killer in Canadian history because the majority of mass murderers are um, depressed guys that kill their families with a gun. Now, would you want to read like 50 stories of that in a row? No. Uh, it's it bore the hell out of you, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so uh, I gave a couple examples of that in there. Um, but I, I, I looked a lot at, um, we had a, a terrible massacre at uh, called Polytechnique in uh, Montreal in uh, the late 80s, I think it was 89, um, where uh, this uh, frustrated young uh, geeky guy called Mark Levine decided that he was going to kill uh, quote-unquote feminists uh, and walked into this uh, walked into this engineering classroom and uh, shot all, ordered all the male students out and then using a uh, I think it was like a semi-automatic machine gun, a storm ruger, that's what it was. Uh, he, he shot uh, all the female students and then continued to go on a rampage throughout the school, killing only women but also shooting men and blowing his own brains out. So I did that case. Um, uh, probably the most interesting case in that book was uh, from, from the 19th century where there was a, uh, a, Cree, uh, a Cree Indian in uh, what is now Alberta. Um, and this was during a time of famine because all the, the buffalo were, were being killed off. And this is what he would have hunted traditionally, you know, his ancestors. 
uh, and uh, there's less and less buffalo because uh, you know the white men shooting them from, from, from trains for sport. You know, it's uh, so. At the same time, there's this myth going on that if you in in Cree uh, culture and in some other um, Native uh, American cultures that if you consume somebody's flesh, that you turn into a kind of demonic creature called uh, a Wendigo. And I won't get into the details of what that is. You can look it up or buy my book. That's even better. It's on Amazon. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> getting better. Getting, getting good with those plugs. I eh? yeah. Um uh, anyway, so this guy is uh, its a particularly bad winter. Uh, I believe it's 1879. Forgive me if it's not. I'm all just juggling a lot of facts in my head. Um, and he can't provide for his family anymore. Uh, he's an alcoholic. Uh, and they're just having a terrible winter. And at some point he decides that he's going to eat his family. So some of the family start moving on. Uh, looking for food because the guy who's supposed to provide for them can't do it. They leave him alone with his little son and he butchers and kills his little son and eats him. And then he goes looking for the rest of the family and he tracks them down. And I think it was somewhere between seven and nine of them, let's say eight, okay? Um, He killed all all like eight members of his family, uh, including his wife, his brother-in-law, and his own children, and he and he ate all of them. And uh, he believed that he had turned into this Wendigo creature. And uh, it was actually uh, he he came back to civilization after the uh, the winter had ended. And uh, interestingly, according to the sources that I read, it was the uh, his his fellow Cree that noticed that there was something off about him because they. In, they could identify this Wendigo psychosis, which is a cult- culturally specific psychosis. That means that it's kind of like a schizophrenia that can only happen in certain cultures. A very fascinating phenomenon. It's, glo- it's a global thing. Um, look it up. Uh, but they could identify this Wendigo psychosis, and then they thought, well, where did all of this family go? They went to the RCMP, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, the guys in the Dudley Do Rights, and um, voiced their suspicions. And uh, the RCMP said, you know, Swift Runner, that was the guy's name, Swift Runner, you know, if you take us to where your, your, your family supposedly starved, because I think that was the story he gave them. And he, he led them back there, and uh, they start finding uh, cauldrons full of human skin. And just very clear signs that the guy had eaten his whole family, and they're they're like physically ill. They're vomiting in the bushes and stuff about it. And anyways, he he was hanged enough. Um, so um, the, the thing that I found interesting was that like I had two cases of of cannibalism in Rampage Canadian mass murder and spree killing. I didn't have any in the serial killing one. And that's, so that's not very common, I would guess. No, not really. Cannibalism is pretty rare. Um, yeah. It's, uh, when I think of incidents where it's happened in multiple murderers in Canada, I can think of, off the top of my head, two. I think it's two. They were both spree killers. Yeah, uh, yeah so that, one, that one's a great book uh, as well. I, obviously, um, 
I, I was able to take the choice cuts of the most interesting cases. I actually prefer to um, to cold north killers, but whatever it is, people seem to just be more interested in serial killers than mass murderers and spree killers. So it hasn't sold as well, but I think it's definitely the superior book. Not that you, know, you shouldn't buy both of them and subscribe quarterly <laughs> at www.serialkillerquarterly.com. And that was that was uh, really good, and it was a good choice. It was a good uh, selection of of words too. Choice cuts. <laughs> choice cuts. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's the you know I've, I've been doing this necrophilia textbook. Yeah. And and it's like you you realize you'll be like well you know we'll dig a little deeper and see what we come up with, and you'll you'll send that out. You you have no intention of like what that means. And then you send it out, and you go oh no, I made one of those yeah like inadvertent necrophilia puns. And, yeah. You know, it comes with, especially with the necrophilia thing, it happens all the time. Like, you just, and you start to use the terms of the phrase, figures of speech, and then you're like, oh, wait, that could be interpreted as, like, necrophilia. So, it's it's a very funny profession, in in a way. I know that sounds (laughs) odd, but, like, sometimes you, you see things that are just so outlandish that... It's like jokes are going to arise at some point, you know. It's just—it's a release, right? It's just, it's letting some stress out too, probably. I think for some people it is, yeah, uh, definitely. For myself, it's just like, what are you going to do? Like, you, you sent uh, a text message to your, your co-editor, and you said, you know, keep, well, uh, keep digging. I'm sure we can find <laughs> the files on the guy, and then you then you send it, and you go. Oh, keep digging. I mean, it's pretty crack up. What are you going to do? You can't, you, you can't take things seriously. All that's the danger, I think. Yeah. Okay, that's the danger. Like you got to realize that ultimately, this is a very serious topic. This is, you know, about as serious as you can get. Besides, perhaps genocides or world wars, this is about as serious a subject you can get. But if you treat it like that all the time and you can never have a, a joke about it then you're heading down the, the road to having some kind of breakdown or not being able to cope with it yeah. so i just roll with it you know like i know where my heart is i know where my mind is and i'm a good person i don't worry about i don't worry about those kind of things yeah you can get your uh research and your book done better that way i think right so oh yeah for sure and there was times uh not so much now, because I'm just so acclimatized to it. It's what, it's what I do all the time. Now, for the House of Mystery Case Files. Carla Homolka and Paul Bernardo looked like Ken and Barbie, the ideal couple. But in their private world, they were joined together by unspeakable crimes. And their first victim? Carla's own little sister, 15-year-old Tammy. Carla spiked Tammy's eggnog with sleeping pills called Halcyon and used Halothane, an anesthetic used in animal surgery stolen from the veterinary clinic where Carla worked. That would guarantee that the girl would stay out. But in the process, of course, he got to have sex with this comatose girl, teenage girl. And they, and they made a video of it. The videotape also showed Carla having sex with her sister. Tammy choked and died. Once Tammy was dead, it changed everything. She said that Paul Bernardo said to her, if you don't do what I tell you, I'm going to tell your family that you killed Tommy Hamalka, your sister. 
The Canadian authorities ruled it an accident. Ironically, just weeks before, through tips and a police sketch, Paul had been questioned on suspicion of being what was dubbed locally the Scarborough Rapist. Since 1987, the year he met Carla, Paul Bernardo committed an estimated 14 rapes. She coerced this young friend into the house and while he wasn't even there, she put her down in exactly the way she did her sister and called him and said, I have a wedding present for you, get home. To protect her identity, authorities call her Jane Doe. Paul decided to reciprocate Carla's present. He kidnapped 14-year-old Leslie Mahaffey from her own backyard. Carla and Paul raped Leslie Mahaffey for 24 hours. It was all on the videotape, but after that, accounts differ. Paul Bernardo, uh, after he killed Leslie, took her body into the basement, bought some cement, uh, cut up her body with a chainsaw, her limbs from the torso and her head, and then he encased these parts in blocks of cement. And then he took these blocks out to Lake Gibson and dumped them in the water there. They went on the hunt again. Paul and Carla went out in uh, the spring of 1992 to look for a sex life, to, to cruise uh, and try and find a teenage girl. And Carla picked out Kristen French. Paul Bernardo and, um, and Carla Mocha held Kristen French captive for three days. He would script Kristen French to say, you're the king of the virgins, all the virgins love you, master. Kristen French's nude body was found in a ditch, her long hair crudely cut off, savagely beaten and apparently strangled just yards from Leslie Mahaffey's grave. On February 17, 1993, Paul Bernardo was arrested as the Scarborough rapist. The DNA results had finally come back. He was their rapist, but the Niagara police couldn't pin the murders on Paul. They didn't have enough evidence. They hadn't found the videotapes yet. And that was good news for Carla. She testifies against her husband. She gets a 12-year sentence for two counts of manslaughter. Paul Bernardo pled not guilty to the murders. He has always maintained it was Carla who killed Leslie Mahaffey, Kristen French, and her sister, Tammy. The police and prosecutors portrayed Carla as a battered woman suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder. Paul Bernardo Teal was convicted on two counts of first-degree murder after Carla testified against him. He is serving two life sentences. When I was writing for Cole North Killers, um, the chapter on Paul Bernardo and Carla Homoka, now for those of you that don't know that case, essentially he was, Paul Bernardo was a prolific and sadistic rapist in uh, the greater Toronto area in the late 80s uh, who married a woman named uh, Carla Homoka, um, good-looking couple, they called them the Ken and Barbie Killers. Um, and uh, classic psychopath and uh, he bought uh, well he was renting a nice house uh, in a place called St. Catharines, Ontario a little uh, west of, uh, of Toronto and uh, once he had the house he was able to rather than just raiding his victims he was able to abduct them and repeatedly rape them and uh, he had uh, a, a very willing accomplice in Carla Homoka. Um, and, and we know this because the, uh, the rapes were, uh, were videotaped and she was seen enthusiastically participating. So um, 
first of all, uh, they accidentally killed Carla's, I think she was 14-year-old sister, on, like, December 23rd, uh, as they were having a family Christmas, because uh, he had convinced Carla to let him take her sister's virginity because Carla wasn't a virgin and therefore he'd been denied that opportunity and for some reason that argument worked with her probably because <laughs> she's sick yeah. <laughs> and uh, so they uh, they waited till everyone else in the house had gone to bed they'd been lacing Tammy Hamoka's drinks all night uh, with um, halcyon yeah it was crushed halcyon pills and uh so it's just them, and Tammy's allowed to stay up and watch the movie with the grown-ups and, you know, probably feeling like she's she's cool and, you know, passing into adulthood and uh, goes unconscious. And uh, that's when they pull out the video camera and uh, some halothane and a rag and film as, uh, as Paul is uh, raping and sodomizing her. Um, the thing that went wrong is that, uh, is that uh, Tammy started to uh, vomit and began choking on her own vomit because they, they screwed up the drugging and the halothane and everything. So Tammy just dies in the basement quick, uh, you know, uh, suddenly, and they don't know what to do about it. So they go about covering things up, uh, and, and they, have, they realize they have to call the police in order to try and save her, but at the same time, they don't want to get caught for doing what they're doing. Uh, and they didn't get caught. They got away with it somehow, even though there was a giant red mark on Tammy's face from where the, the um, halothane uh, from the rag had, because had, uh, a chemical had left a chemical burn on her face. Uh, not very well investigated, in my opinion. And uh, Tammy was buried. So the first known uh, homicide victim of uh, Paul Bernardo and Carla Hamoka was Carla's own 14-year-old sister during the Christmas season when she tried to gift her, uh, he would have been her boyfriend at that point, um, gift her boyfriend her little sister's virginity. So already you're starting out in a pretty dark place. Yeah. Then you move on to uh, where he, where they get married and, and move into this house and abduct uh, two girls around the age of like 14, 15 and uh, videotaped uh, raping sodomizing them and degrading them um, you know, urinating and defecating on, on them uh, just statistic terror uh, atrocious rape behavior and, and, and the killings were committed off camera but uh, when I was writing about that case even though I was able to deal with it um, cognitively, I'd, I'd, already, I'd already knew about it. Because I had to do a lot of a lot of reading, and there's a lot of books on, on that case. Um, I could almost feel like a, a darkness just hanging over me. So even though I was cognitively being able to manage it, and it was just work, at the same time, I would find I'd have to take these breaks for a few days from that case and go to like another one because it was just, it was just something heavy about it and that I just couldn't at that time I, I realized it was not in my best interest to just keep on that case it had to be written when I was ready to write it right 
Yeah, makes sense. Didn't she get out? Apparently? Oh yeah, yeah. She got to go live in uh, in, in Guadeloupe with her uh, lawyer's uh, brother, and, and now she's mother of I think three children. Yeah, she uh, she really played the Canadian justice system. She did play the battered woman card. Uh, she lied essentially, and uh, and that it should have broken the terms of the plea bargain, but for some reason they never enforced it, and so she served a very minimal sentence. Uh, I can't remember was it was eight, ten years, something like that, and then she got out, and taxpayer got to pay for you know giving her a new identity and relocating her, and and, and so she ended up living in Guadeloupe in like a Caribbean paradise. Children. Let's, how do people get your book? How do they get a hold of you? And are you doing any uh, upcoming events or book signings? Or are you uh, any any lectures or anything coming up? Oh yeah, yeah. Um, the stuff I'm I'm doing a lecture actually at the American Investigative Society of Cold Cases conference in St. Louis. Um, that would be in the end of June. Um, and I'm going to be lecturing on uh, necrophilia and homicides for an hour and a half. Now, I, I imagine that uh, most of your listeners are not going to go to St. Louis uh, to hear that. Uh, so if you, if, if you want to, by all means, let, come up I'll, uh, and uh, tell me that you've heard about it on this radio show, and we'll hang out and, and <laughs> because I'll be amazed if anyone on this radio show goes to that. But uh, as far as my as far as my products go, uh, well, obviously I would, I would love if uh, if uh, your listeners subscribe to uh, Serial Killer Quarterly. Just go to www.serialkillerquarterly.com and uh, subscribe for the upcoming year. You can also buy one of our back issues or all of them if you want to check out the quality. I, I don't think that you'll be disappointed. You can get them in ebook form on Amazon, DVD, stuff like that if you want, but the ebooks don't look anywhere as nice as the PDFs, so I always encourage please go with the PDFs. That's the point. They look beautiful. Um, so, yeah, www.serialkillerquarterly.com. Uh, if, if this stuff interests you and you want to read from some of the best true crime writers there are out there, uh, as for my books, uh, right now there are two out. Both are sort of non academic, but they're still. You can still learn stuff from them, uh, and they're about the history of uh, multiple murder in Canada, the first Cold North Killers Canadian serial murder. Uh, that's got 60 cases of uh, serial homicide in Canada, and you can get that from Amazon. Uh, and uh, the same goes for Rampage Canadian Mass Murder and Spree Killing. Get that from Amazon, too. Um, and... Uh, that's uh, product-wise. That's uh, about what I've got right now. But look for a lot more stuff coming up in the future, because I'm working like a dog to uh, bring horror to the masses. <laughs> and we appreciate that. <laughs> I oh, I hope somebody does. I hope that I hope that someone who tunes, tunes into a show like yours can appreciate it. If I never understand, like uh, sometimes I'll see a review on Amazon. I, I was going to buy this. Uh, I did actually buy it. It was a novel by uh, Patricia Springer, who is, I believe she's a Texan true crime writer, and it was called like Blood Frenzy or something like that. And and it was a true crime book about you know sexual murderers in 
in Texas, and it was very obvious what it is. It's in the true crime category. It describes what the book is about. And I just glanced down at the reviews to see if it was any good. And, you know, there's like, there's a, you see people giving it like one star, like, I can't believe such a horrific book was written. You know, shame on the author for, for writing this book. I, I brought this into my Christian household, and, oh. <laughs> and, I, and now I burned it, and I'm like, what did you think it was? Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's yeah. like me buying a, a Britney Spears album, yeah. <laughs> and, and then like, you know, writing a letter to to her publicity team or whatever, like, yeah. I'm very disappointed that I didn't like this pop music game yeah. aimed at the you know, teen, audience of teenage girls. How dare you yeah. put this on the market? So, yeah, yeah. yeah. I know. So, yeah, yeah if you're listening to, uh, to uh, Al's show, you'll probably like what I've got to offer. So, please, oh, yeah. by all means, uh, uh, check it out. You're going you're gonna to like it, really. Oh, yeah, and they will. Actually, uh, and we're going to link it to our website as well. We'll put the books and everything up there. I think that uh, what happens is you start to realize that um, reality, things that we can prove have happened and are true, like irrefutably, is so much more horrific than anything for me that can exist in some sort of supernatural realm right yeah. you know yeah. i don't get afraid of, of ghosts or demons or anything are you kidding no I, i'm I, more I, afraid of live people <laughs> well that's it i know what mankind can do yeah. you know, we don't need any help from from outside entities we're uh <laughs> we're doing well ourselves <laughs> yeah and in and, and, and the being grotesquely inhumane department uh, yeah certainly. no so um, uh, um, but it is it is interesting that uh uh, true crime and is often linked, uh, you know, with the paranormal and and linked with uh, like conspiracy theory type stuff. I would, this yeah. is what we were discussing before we yeah. went on air, you and I, and how um, there's like an overlap between these these different sort of genres and these interests and what is it? And I think it's that people like mystery and they like intrigue and they like things that they can't quite grasp and understand yeah. and and yeah. we we certainly bring that out in serial killer quarterly but we also offer some explanations too because you know what when you do start to grasp it it gets even more fascinating yeah yeah and we call it first cousins <laughs> first Par- cousins? Yeah. Par- paranormal and true crime we call them first cousins because uh every other paranormal show too like uh and that we're even related with, like, you know, Darkness Radio and everybody's all starting to do a, a, a true crime day through the week now. And it's just becoming a uh, common thing. It just sort of, you, you, your audience crosses over. It's just, um, it's nuts. And I will say, you know, the ones that we've linked, like, you know, Thomas Horan's Zodiac Keller mm-hmm. and, and even Kevin... Kevin uh, Sullivan's two books and uh, Kevin writes for us. I just want to interject that. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, he wrote a great piece on uh, Ted Bundy for our uh, our 2014 Christmas issue. So if you like Kevin's writing, pick that one up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we we did as Richard Case as well, and and uh, actually, and uh, Catherine Casey of uh, the I-45 or the Texas 45. 
murder. Oh, yeah, yeah, Deliver Us. I'm Deliver actually us. reading that right now. I was supposed to interview Catherine for the um, for Serial Killer Quarterly, but I'm just so swamped with work. It's like uh, I don't have time to to read all the books I need to. And so, Oh, I, I tell me, I know that feeling. Well, I have to say, I appreciate you taking the time, and I know it's late where you are, so... Um, I'm up all night. Of course, I'm a night person. Of course. <laughs> See better in the dark. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, it's been a lot of fun, and uh, thank you for doing it. Hey, no problem. Um, I like the show. I like you. So anytime you want me back on, as long as it's not like the next week, but, you know. It's, no, God, no. But, uh, obviously, I can, yeah, I can, I can talk about this forever. So if you ever need a guest, let me know. I'll come back. Yeah, we could actually do maybe a, a case or two or something, go through um, some, some of the cases, you know, um, in more detail. That would be kind of fun. Yeah, something a bit more specific. Yeah, yeah. So it was, uh, it was great talking to you, Al. Yeah, um, it, was, it was really cool. I'll um, send you all the links and everything like that. I'll keep you informed as soon as I've got everything set and so you know. And uh, now uh, for our ad, do you want me just to use a picture of your book or the quarterly? Um, are you able to do, um, yeah, sometimes I see, like, you'll get an image and then it fades into another one. Oh, yeah, like that. I'll be doing that, um, for the... During the radio. For, yeah, and, and, yeah, for sure, during the, uh, yeah, I can do that. I've, I've had that done a few times with, like, sometimes people will be, uh, talking and then different books will come up for them or whatever they want, really. Yeah, so I would say, like... Do uh, take two of the covers from the from Serial Killer Quarterly. Um, I can always send you the stuff if you like, and then maybe like Cold um, Cold North Killers. Oh, for yeah. sure. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I have actually, and I have someone that helps me do that. There's a there's a girl that does all that for us. So, and okay. uh, really good work and really good ads and stuff like that, and gets posted all over. It's on because we have apps for you know iPhone, iPad, and we're on uh, iTunes and everything. So. Um, it will get a lot of exposure. That, oh, that sounds good. Yeah. So, what, uh, I mean, we didn't form, really formally end the interview. How, how do you normally do it? You just sort of cut it up a bit? Oh, yeah. Like, I'll, 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 I'll run through. I'll do probably two or three drafts before I even uh, send it to um, my other editor, and she'll go through that and then send it back to me, and if I approve it, then it'll go in, and then they have to clip in the ads, and I have to do all these voiceovers, like, uh, you know, uh, you know, our guest is, is whatever, and our bo- and the subject is this, and we'll be back after this. I fill all that in, and they'll tell me the brake pads, so. And oh, bumper music, nice. bumper music as well, like, you know, it'll all get filled in. This is okay, really the fine. better way of doing it, I'll tell you, when you're doing it live, what a pain in the ass. Depends on the guest, I, su- I suppose. Um, yeah, uh, but but then there's, you also have technical issues too, right? Like someone calls in on a phone and it's all crackly and yeah, and you, you get nuts calling you and people not answering, and then you get uh, there's all sorts of things, and plus things go wrong, and sometimes you you'll say things wrong or you have to cough and your voice is out, and yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean it's okay, but it's just. It seems like it seems like you have either a really bad interview or a really good one. You know, it's just like <laughs> everything goes wrong. So yeah, pretty much. I always just try and I don't even consider them interviews. I consider them conversations. 
that, that's how they're, they're the ones that always sound better. Uh, when I go through the drafts, when I'm doing them at first, they're always the better ones because it just you put it on and it just plays, and it sounds like people are just sitting there talking about something. It's, I find it more interesting, and I think it, it it just plays better for people rather than some some sound really staged, you know. Definitely, and that's uh, I think that comes from people just overthinking their their role and like you know the, being too conscious of like what is my place in society and how, how do I conduct myself and yeah. you know do I have to be where do I show confidence and where do I where do I tell the truth and where do I omit things and just all that shit you know yeah. oh totally yeah. well, I always get it when we get people that are going all over like I had oh Sherman Casey do you know him oh. he did the Boston Strangler searching for the Boston Strangler and he just did the new the last book on Boston Strang Strong the one about the uh, you know the, the two boys that uh, did the Boston oh, yeah, Ma- the you, know. Yeah. you know what a pain in the ass you know you have like Two publicists, and they give you lists of things you can ask, and then then they then they talk to you for an hour before you even talk to the person, and then and uh, if you say anything or ask anything that's not on the question list, he'll stop and go. Uh, I I I'm, I'm not going to talk about that. That's not on the list. I wouldn't do the interview if we talk about that. You know, like they're real. So it just becomes like an infomercial. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. And, uh, I don't know. I just see that as being a little uh, like uh, cowardly. Like, you know, yeah. like, come on, man. Where's your, where's your ability to just stand up for yourself? But if you asked me a question I thought was rude. Yeah. You know, I just feel like, you know, I, I'm not gonna talk about that. And I just, you know, I, I just respond to it like honestly. You know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't set up the parameters beforehand. Like. Yeah. Well, yeah. when you say if you just stand, send a stage like, here's the 20 questions you can ask. That's it. Then you can't even elaborate, you know, you give an answer, and it's totally rehearsed, so they even send you the answers, you know, so you know what they're going to say. <laughs> I just like, I just kind of look at it and go, well, what's the point? You know, it puts me in that mood, so it's, if, if I'm not interested, then who else is going to be interested in this, you know, I, that's... No, that's, no, I agree with you. I think that, like, uh, I think that I'd like to see more of this in television, too. I was trying to get a TV show that works more on this principle. I think that people prefer to feel like that they're just in the room and listening to, uh, being a part of, more so a a listener to a conversation that they can't normally have, right? Most people can't normally sit there and talk with somebody who's, spends their whole life, you know, looking into the criminology of serial killers. Right. And so the more stiff and the more scripted and, and I come across with that, it's like, it's not a conversation. It's uh, it's like you said, that, uh, what was the word you used? In- infomercial is what I... An infomercial, right? They don't want to watch an infomercial. Yeah. They want to be sitting at the edge of the couch as we and Al are having just a very natural conversation about things that they know a lot about yeah exactly i mean i i had uh you know on the paranormal show i think uh, the reason i kind of got popular was because of that like when i had the witch of salem i wasn't asking her the typical questions it would be like uh when, when she you know she she's the witch of salem she has witches in her family so to me it was like well 
you're married. So what was like that when you were dating guys? How do you tell them you're a witch? You know, <laughs> and to me it was like you got you got this teenage daughter. Like when she brings home a boy or so she's dating a guy, what happens? My mom's a witch. Like like. I just like asking questions, and you know, what's it like? You know? Okay. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, actually, yeah. And that's, uh, you know, but, uh, you know, exactly. what's, uh, I just want to know, I want to ask questions that are yeah. interesting, too. I don't want to just be like, oh, you know, uh, you know, the same old standard that you've heard on 50 other interviews. I'd like to have a little bit different, so. Yeah. A little bit more. I, I will admit that, uh, I mean, some of the answers that I gave you, yeah. are answers that I've, I've given on other interviews. Oh, yeah. But yeah. The, the fact is, it's just because this is the truth. Like, I mean, that, that's the answer. Yeah, and that's, so. gonna, they're, they're, that, that's, that's going to be. Um, you know, I ju it, it's really hopefully that I can hit some subjects that not everybody else does. That's all. It's kind of or an angle or go in a different direction sometimes. I like to try and bring it somewhere that they wouldn't have got it if they've listened because podcasts are big now too right you know mm -hmm. um probably two-thirds of the listeners listen through podcasts or itunes or, or more than they do terrestrial radio now yeah and, uh, and I, I think there's a very good reason for that it's like first of all the podcast you can put it on whenever you want right yeah, yeah. Uh, you can listen to it on any device that, that you want, and the content of terrestrial radio sucks. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Like, when was the last time you turned on the radio and you're like, whoa, this is boundary-pushing stuff. Like, yeah. you know, this doesn't, this doesn't happen. I mean, it, yeah. I'd say satellite radio is definitely an improvement, but yeah. Uh, still, yeah, the Internet's the best. Oh, oh it, it really is. and. And as things stream more and more, when well, people are into that too, right? Even with their TVs and and on demand and and every and DVRs and stuff, everybody wants to. Nobody runs home to watch a show at a certain time anymore. Those days are gone. Yeah, and and it makes sense. I, I can't think of a good argument, you know, to to advocate that old way. Yeah, there isn't. The only thing that the old terrestrial radio part's good for is if you need local news when you're driving in your car about traffic or something or weather or something really local. That's it. Yeah, yeah who knows? Maybe one day like, there will be an app for that on, on well, there probably already is, but you know, that like when something happens, ding, your yeah. phone comes on and a voice comes out. Yeah, it won't be long. The whole car will be online, so, you know. Yeah, it's, uh, it, it's very interesting to see how uh, how things are moving like in, into the online realm like it's just becoming it's becoming more of our lives than our than our actual yeah lives you know everything's online now yeah we see the new fridges are going to be online too eh sorry how, how about how can a fridge be online they're putting fridges online so that uh you can uh uh, you know, it just sounds really corny to me because I'm just like I've never needed it before. You can um, adjust your fridge temperatures. You can. Um, I know. I'm just like, well, why? Like, I don't what? adjust my fridge temperatures manually. I know. It's I like said, I took the fridge <laughs> and I put stuff in it. Well, you know, and it tells you, like, you know, because they've got the filters in with the fridges that pour out water, and it'll tell you. And it, they even want to do apps like the the. Frigidaire or whatever, where you're in a, 
in a store that sells their fridge and it can even tell you the filter you need for your fridge and you're just you're just about time to get a new filter like I, I, it's just getting a little bit weird I think yeah that's that's stupid I mean I, I think it's good for um, human communications and for buying yeah. for purchasing products sure I can understand the utility of that but yeah you know, operate my fridge using like the remote controls of my internet yeah I think it's just more Never marketing. Once occurred to me that's something that I, I should yeah. do. It's more marketing, I think. You know, you just sell things as it's being advanced and modern, and you really need it. Your smartphone can tell you when your beer's ready. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> well, there you go. You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, all shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com. Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Yeah. Good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian-developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www. HouseofMystery.com Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Yeah. Good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.